Okay, let's start with the Ravens' big moves. A big splash during the middle of the day yesterday. Remember when, a couple months ago, we were talking about the potential pursuit by the Ravens of Yannick Ngakwe, the Jaguars at that time, star pass rush. They didn't end up with him. He went to the Minnesota Vikings. Well, fast forward a couple weeks, and now the Ravens did, in fact, trade for Yannick Ngakwe. They sent a third-rounder and a future late-round pick to the Minnesota Vikings, who bail early on the trade for the star pass rusher. Played well for them just the season. is clearly not going the way the Minnesota Vikings wanted. So Baltimore ends up with Ngakwe anyway, adding to an already stacked defense, uh, taking on some of his money. And, of course, Minnesota gets out from under that. That was not the only thing that the Ravens did yesterday. They also hosted Des Bryant for a workout. My understanding is the Baltimore team does plan to sign Des to their practice squad. Not the big team yet. Their practice squad. Let him come in, get his feet wet before potentially getting promoted. That is the idea, assuming that his workout goes well. So Des Bryant finally brings the X back to the NFL, except in Baltimore. another episode of the final call some big moves from the Ravens yesterday Yannick Ngakwe and Des Bryant plucked from obscurity by the Ravens yesterday finally signing him to a contract after three years of being out of the league basically uh Andrew Fantuccio alongside as always the man with the easiest name in the zoom Mr. Jason Snow Ben's not with us today Jason how what do you feel about these two moves I, I honestly like him. Um, I like the Yannick Ngakwe deal a lot better than the Des Bryant deal. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get uh, get into that in a second. But Baltimore, they want to separate themselves. They want to prove that we're going to load up to beat Kansas City. That that's, that's their main goal in this. And obviously, winning a Super Bowl goes hand in hand with that. But they want to prove, like, we can make Mahomes uncomfortable. They're not going to be our, our kryptonite, as they said. Um, I think it was ESPN that said that to Lamar Jackson. They want to. They want to win. That, that's essentially what it is, and and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get there. So if that means they're going to bulk up their their pass rush, which is already pretty good, if you look at their roster, they rank like third in the league in, in sacks. They just get richer, and I think you know. I don't think that's a necessarily negative thing. If if you give up like mid round draft picks for something like that, I, I think it's worth it. Absolutely, a great move. I love the trade for Ngakwe. I'm not so high on the Des Bryant signing. We'll get to that in a little bit, but we'll, we'll focus on Ngakwe for a little bit. Yeah. Ravens getting Ngakwe from the Vikings for a 2021 third-round pick and a conditional fifth-round pick in 2022. Um, again, you're basically trading draft picks that won't, I mean, I don't want to say won't become much, but aren't very likely to become much for pretty good pass rusher, one that's a, uh, wreaked havoc in the AFC before in his time with uh, Jacksonville. I like the move, and Gakwe's got five sacks on the season, 11 quarterback pressures, and that's just adding to an already uh, stacked defensive front that's number two uh, in the NFL. You know, yeah. only – you say they're trying to compete with Kansas City. I mean, I think before they even consider doing that, they had to worry about Pittsburgh. The Steelers are right there with them in the that's AFC true. North. And the Steelers have, uh, I think, still a better defense. So uh, this move is really kind of – 
setting the uh, stage for their matchup in a couple weeks with Steelers and Ravens. That's going to be a defensive matchup to behold. Um, does Ngakwe put them above the Raven? Put the Ravens above the Steelers? I think they are. I think they were before Ngakwe, and I, I think they separate even more. Uh, I love Pittsburgh, but I, I I'm not totally sold yet. I think there's there's some winning to be had, and I think there's some resume boosting that needs to happen before I really consider them to be a Super Bowl contender team. I think they can make the playoffs. I think they will. It's just a matter of can they get over the top of, of Kansas City and Baltimore. I think they're third in the, in the AFC, maybe even behind Tennessee at this point. Who knows? But ultimately, I think Baltimore did separate themselves even further. Um, when you bring in a guy that can really wreak havoc, like you said, in that like NFC, you played really well with the with the Vikings, and the Vikings, you know, that just turned out to be a tailspin. They're not, they don't know what they're doing right now, especially with Kirk Cousins. But that's another discussion for another show, I'm sure. But um, he played well, like you said, five sacks. Re- like that's a tough division too to play in, and and he made himself comfortable. And Baltimore knows these these Jacksonville guys pretty well, going back to how they signed uh, Calais Campbell earlier in the offseason, and that's been a good move for them. So those guys know each other well. That side of the ball, especially on the defensive line, is all about chemistry as well. So I think that'll play a big piece, and I think they're second in the AF- they're, they're the second best team in the AFC to me. You know, it was already close as it was. I thought the Ravens had the better secondary starting out. Yeah, and Pittsburgh had the better front seven, but now adding in Gakwe, I think Pittsburgh still has more front line talent with Watt and Dupree, but I think. Baltimore now has more depth. They can come at you in waves. They don't have just Yannick Ngakwe and Calais Campbell. They also have Pernell McPhee. They also have Brandon Williams. They have a lot of really strong, solid defensive linemen that they can attack you with as well as cover you and blanket you completely. So I like the move. And, you know, basically Minnesota in this trade is getting back what they gave up to get Ngakwe. Uh, And the deal, again, from – uh, Minnesota to Baltimore. Minnesota got a 2021 third round pick and a conditional fifth in 2022. And the trade that they acquired in Gakwe for it was a 2021 second round pick and a conditional fifth round pick in 2022. So you're basically just kind of getting back what you lost. I mean, it's not a second round pick, it's a third round pick, but you know, either way, you're kind of replacing what you lost. You, you mentioned the Chiefs and you say that this is really a move to contend with Kansas City. Why do you say that? Because the the recipe to Mahomes is A, either get him off the field, or B, make him as uncomfortable as possible. If you can get that guy to throw maybe off his back leg more, if you can get him to if you can tempt him into making these high risk, potentially high reward throws, but high risk throws into a secondary that we both admit might be the best in the AFC. You can pick off Mahomes a couple of times. You can make him uncomfortable. You can buy your offense some t- like Baltimore's really interesting to me because they're I think they're best if they're playing with a lead. And in and, and Mahomes and Kansas City, they score in a blink. They can score first possession, second possession, bam, you're out of the game. You're down by 14. And Baltimore's completely out of their element. So if you can kind of hold Mahomes scoreless for maybe the first or second drive, maybe score a field goal, maybe score a touchdown, get up 10 nothing, you're gonna have to, you know rely on the run more, keep Mahomes off the field more. And I think that plays to more Baltimore strengths than Kansas City strengths. Is, is, I think that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I said a couple of weeks ago when these two teams played each other, Baltimore's a team that can't play from behind. They, they, they just can't. The problem is now adding in Gawkway doesn't elevate you. It only slows down Kansas City. 
So I think the issue, you go back to that game they played, the issue wasn't the defense. I mean, yeah, they gave up 24 points. They were down big in the first half. But that was because the offense couldn't get going. Yeah. They had like six straight drives that ended in a punt or a turnover. So I think the move, I mean, yes, it, this move of adding Ngakwe makes Baltimore better. But it doesn't help them compete with Kansas City. They need, if they really want to compete with Kansas City, they really want to compete with the Chiefs, they have to match them firepower for firepower. Problem is, Baltimore doesn't have the weapons in the passing game. And that's ultimately where you need to meet them. Because, yeah, you can keep them up. You can keep Mahomes off the field. But can you score in Kansas City's defense? Because they weren't able to in that game. I don't think it solves the problem, but I definitely think it helps. Like, if you can get Yannick Ngakwe on your team, you do it. Absolutely. I, I think they need another weapon proven weapon that can actually play in today's NFL and we'll get to that in just a second <laughs> but they need another layer on offense and and maybe this proves your point that Lamar isn't a precision passer yet maybe they're they're exposing some of those holes but I don't think you beat Kansas City by playing Kansas City's game you you don't beat Kansas City by we're going to make highlight highlight throws we're going to play flashy we're going to try to outscore them you're not going to outscore kansas city what you can do is you can try to muck up the game and be like you know what mahomes we're not going to let you score over 17 we're, we're, we're going to try our best to beat you up as, as intentional as that sounds we're going to try to make it you so uncomfortable that you have to dig out plays that you haven't even thought of before and if any Reed can think of a play then he will but if we can make if they, we can make this a ground and pound game, I think Baltimore would absolutely do it. I don't think Yannick Ngakwe puts him above Kansas City, but I definitely put. I think he makes them more competitive. If that makes sense, it does make sense, and I think you're right there. But ultimately, to beat Kansas City, not make it a close game, not lose by a field goal. I mean, to beat Kansas City, mm-hmm. you have to put up points because they're going to score regardless. I don't care how good you are on defense. You could be Baltimore. You could be Pittsburgh. And we just said Baltimore has a great defense already. Kansas City still put up 24 on them. That's true. You know, against one of the best secondaries in the NFL. Mahomes carved them without a problem. And, you know, you say force Mahomes to make a play. I mean – I say, yeah, that you have to do that with any quarterback, but Mahomes has proven he can make any play. You know, and that, and that, and that, that that's just, that's what makes him such a unicorn. That's what makes it such an unfair matchup. I'm not trying to bag on the Ravens because this is something that any team would have struggled doing. Mm-hmm. Any team would have a problem trying to match Mahomes. But if you're going to beat him, you got to be able to score points because you're not going to be able to stop him. You can slow him down for a little bit, but eventually – you're going to see the Chiefs put up points. We saw it in their game against the Patriots. The Patriots held the Chiefs to two field goals in the first half, but eventually the Chiefs found a way. They'll eventually find a way. But didn't we all come out of that, that New England game and just say six points in the first half? Patriots would have beaten Kansas City in Arrowhead if they had Cam Newton. Like That was the consensus coming out of it, and maybe that proves your point that they have to score points. But back to my point, if you can hold Mahomes to under like seven, and don't forget, in the like the scorebook, it says what whatever it was, 26. But if you actually watch, it was like the pick six that Jarrett sent him through that went right into Tyron Matthews' hands. Like Mahomes didn't necessarily power them to that victory. That defense did. And and they do have to be more dynamic. And Baltimore is a lot more dynamic on offense than New England was with Jarrett Stidham and Brian Hoyer. But if you hold Mahomes. If you contain him, and, and that's a tall task to do, but New England found a way to do it, at least in that first half, 
there's a glimmer of hope there. there. There's light at the end of the tunnel there. And I think there's an opportunity for Baltimore to maybe sneak one out if they can muck it up, make it their type of game, and, and more importantly, lead from the start. If they get up 7-10-0 on Kansas City, that plays to Baltimore's strengths, and that just didn't happen in their uh, matchup earlier this year. I would say there's definitely a glimmer of hope if you can hold uh, Mahomes down. If you yeah. can muck, like you're saying, you're not wrong. You are absolutely not wrong. But to get ahead, to win the game, you ultimately have to score points too. And no, I, I agree with you. Like, you know, if Cam Newton was in that game, maybe that's a lot closer. I'm sure, you know, you don't have, you don't have to worry about Brian Hoare botching at the end of the second half. You don't have to worry about Jared Stidham throwing pick sixes. But now, you know, it's weird to say, but does New England have better weapons in the passing game than Baltimore? And I just mean weapons. I'm not saying they are better, but does New England have better weapons? That's an interesting question. Because, like, for so long, we've debated that. I mean, like, how bad New England's weapons are. I mean, Baltimore's receivers are pretty bad, too. I mean, I know they have Marquise Brown, Hollywood Brown, but he's kind of young. He's had injury issues. What do you think? I think, they, I think Baltimore does because, like, the Patriots might find a way to integrate them – more effectively if that makes sense but like i like mark andrews a lot better than whoever the, <laughs> whoever the patriots have at tight end right now i i like hollywood mm-hmm. brown like at the top like maybe the patriots have more depth but i i wouldn't say like edelman hasn't been very good this year Edelman's I, sucked yeah i was putting it nicely but uh, i don't know i'd still take baltimore but cam at least in the earlier parts of this year has made those receivers look pretty good i have to admit especially Nikhil harry in the first couple of games at least but I, I do want to ask you a question, and you know this kind of trends in the Des Bryant situation. There have been rumors between Baltimore and Des before. Do you like it any more now than you did than you might have back then? I I don't know if I totally. I'm not. I don't know if I'm sold on Des. I mean, he's 31 years old. He hasn't played for three years. He's coming off an Achilles injury. I don't love it. I mean, I get it. Like you, you were desperate for weapons. You take whatever you can get. It's, you know, if you have to compete with Kansas City, if you got to put yourself over. Pittsburgh, you need to have some firepower on offense. You know, if, I mean, if you're going to rank those three teams, I mean, outside Lamar Jackson, the Ravens are number three in terms of firepower and talent on offense. Mm-hmm. You know, so you need something. And Des gives you, I don't want to say hope, but a chance. You know, if this works out well and he can get back to what he was in the prime of his career, then great. But I kind of see this working out like how Rob Gronkowski's done in Tampa Bay. Kind of a decoy, washed, not washed up. Oh, Gronk's washed up, but I don't know about Des yet. Um, but older player, injury history. It's been out of the league for at least, you know, for a year plus. I mean, we'll see how it goes. I mean, he's, it's only the practice squad. He's not, they're not signing into a huge contract, so it's not a really high risk. I mean, really, we're only paying attention to it because of the name. If this was any other 31-year-old player who hasn't played in three years, no one would care. That's true. You know what I mean? Yeah. This could go well, but, I mean, Des Bryant, at most, is a red zone target. At most, you put him in, you know, inside the uh, 10-yard line, you let him go up and get the ball. Otherwise, I don't really see this being much of a factor for Baltimore. They still have to get a legit, like, over-the-middle young receiver not well, not young, but they need a. They could really use a, a Julian Edelman in his prime. They could use a Cole Beasley. They could use a Adam Humphreys type. 
they could use a slot receiver that can make throws easy on Lamar so he doesn't have to chuck it downfield, but can hit that five-yard out route. It's someone else besides Mark Andrews uh, or Nick Boyle for them to hit you know, shorter routes over the middle. Yeah, you make a very good point because, like you said, it, it'd be great if Dez can you know, go back to his prime, but the problem is his prime was six years ago when he last had a 1,000-yard season in 2014. He's 31 years old. I mean, I don't know if I expect a lot. Like you said, it's a low-risk, high-reward thing. I guess they can use him in, in certain situations, but you know, if you're Baltimore, you're crossing your fingers that this ends up like a Carmelo Anthony situation. Out of the league, kind of injury-prone, has his own issues, like reported issues, like work ethic, like whatever the case may be with those two guys. But he, that he comes in, brings the locker room together, makes the team believe, and provides some clutch moments for you. That, that's all you can hope for. And Dez, uh, when they first signed Dez, I was, it reminded me of Antonio Brown. Because, and I'll, I'm sure we'll do a segment on this in a couple of weeks, but what front offices would do to get us to get a product like you can like you'll swallow a lot if there's a lot of talent at stake you know what i mean like the seahawks reportedly are willing to sign antonio brown after he retired after just eight weeks of disciplinary and you know <laughs> suspension they're willing to do that because of what he can potentially do hell they did with josh gordon before that as well 100 percent Baltimore is in that situation where they're, I don't want to call it desperate, but they're so in need of what they're after. They're willing to swallow any consequence or ramifications behind it. Dez, 31 years old. Most receivers passed their prime at that point. Achilles injury. Wasn't so great when he was last playing. All of it comes into, wow, this guy's got some flair. And that's what Baltimore needs. So they're willing to swallow some of the baggage, some of the, you know, whatever comes along with Dez. I mean, I never thought of Des Bryant to be the same type of guy as Josh Gordon or Antonio Brown. I never thought of him to be a problem no, off the no, field. No. I mean, yeah, he's got an attitude. He's got a little bit of a, you know, not he's not a diva, but he's not exactly the easiest. He's not, he's not, he's not Kawhi Leonard. You see where I'm coming from? I didn't like, mean to compare those guys. But. No, I know, but I, I see what you're saying. It's, it, there's, there's some risk involved here. Mm-hmm. But the risk doesn't come from his attitude. The risk just comes like he hasn't played in three years. He hasn't played. I mean, he's, there's been rumors of him going to this. You know, he was on the Saints practice squad for, what, um, two weeks before the injury. He visited the Browns once. You know, there, there have been rumors of a Dez return, but now it's, like, finally happening. But that's if he does well in the practice squad for probably two weeks. You know what I mean? Like, th- mm-hmm. this is really his last shot. And the only reason he's getting it is because Baltimore is that desperate. Otherwise, I mean – if Des Bryant could still play at an elite level, if Des Bryant was still the receiver he was, he would have been signed a long time ago. A long time ago. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have sat out there for three years. He <laughs> no. wouldn't have visited you know, five different teams trying to, find a, you know, f- trying to find a place to play. You know what uh, would have been great? What would have been great? If we set up this segment in a way like we could like flash back to uh, the last time Des was like really productive and been like, what was the number one song at the time? What was like the number one uh, movie out? Like, if we just did those stereotypes. That would have been really fun. I wish I thought of that. I don't mean to be mean spirited or anything, but like, no, I mean we could have done that. <laughs> the last time Des was on a football field three years ago, I was a sophomore in high school. Yikes. I was about to graduate high school. Um, what else? Twenty seventeen. Was High School Musical still in? Or no, <laughs> high, school, high School Musical was like when we were in elementary school. Are you kidding me? 
I was like in second grade when that came out, I think. <laughs> the, the principle still lies, though. I mean, it's been a while. So I, I guess, you, I mean. <laughs> when you said principle, I thought you were still talking about a high school musical. I was like, oh, what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> Let, you know, last time Des was on a football field, Tom Brady was, on, was with the Patriots. I don't mean to, you know, stick the, the knife in Ben's heart there, but. There's a lot of things because a lot, lots happened in the last three years and a lot's changing now. Some new head coaches in the NBA, Jason, you got an interesting theory uh, on how teams should pick their next head coaches. Well, Jason Snow with his mall theory next here on the final call. Back on the final call radio, Massasoit. This segment is brought to you by new England sports United written for new england a great publication a great publication indeed my friend jason snow uh you have an interesting theory a scientific theory a scientific i don't know how would you call it? You, you just call it a theory so i've been kind of running with that idea I, I picture you in a lab coat and you know glasses and everything when you come up when you came up with this so explain the mall theory when it comes to picking coaches explain yeah. well when you call it interesting that's a really nice way of putting it i you know put it as ridiculous i don't know what to make of it but I, I thought of this the other day, and it, it related to more so Alex Cora and the Red Sox because New England Sports United, a great publication, New England-based. And I was like, you know what? The Red Sox are kind of a you know, glamour organization. They're pretty big time. They're in a big market. There's usually some dysfunction that goes along with it. And, and usually when I think of that, I think of free agents are tempted to come here, big spender organization that, that really – can be dysfunctional at times, but I was thinking about this and it has to do with coaches being hired. And it, it goes along with my mall theory that if you're a big time organization, if you're a glamour organization, if you sometimes have drama in your organization, hire rock solid because you don't need a big time, big name coach to amplify the drama, to amplify the, the frenzy around the organization. For example, if, you, if you're running the Pittsburgh Steelers, do you really want, I don't know, what's a big, like a Pete Carroll? Would you really hire Pete Carroll? Or would you, like, I, I'm really tempted by hiring coaches that I'm not familiar with. And, and to bring up the mall analogy, if you were to walk in the mall, I like guys that you wouldn't recognize. I like guys that you have to Wikipedia. I like guys that if, you, if they were to walk in a mall, a, a crowd wouldn't form around them begging for autographs. I, I like grinders. I like scouting guys that you wouldn't recognize. I like hiding, you know, hiding in a crowd. I like, I don't like this whole like Stan Van Gundy, big time coach. Like you already have Zion on your team and I'm sure we're going to get to specific examples in a minute, but that could, that just goes back to my theory. If you, if you're a dull organization that, that is based in Indianapolis, yeah, go hire a Belichick, go hire a big name coach. If you're Miami Heat, Hire Eric Spolstra. That's a good fit. If you're the Lakers, you don't hire Mike D'Antoni, okay? You, you, you hire some guy that nobody's heard of because at the end of the day, he won't have to answer questions about his past. There's not a lot of baggage, and, and you can just go in with, an empty, with a clean slate. So that just goes back to my theory. So to go back to you know individual coaching hires, Andrew, I know you wanted to ask me about the ones that just went underway. But, but what's wrong with that theory? I would say Nate Bjorkinson. Love it. Uh, signed by the Indiana Pacers as their new head coach. What do you think of that one? I, I think we can both say that fits your theory. A plus by the Indiana Pacers. I wish I was running the Indiana Pacers. I don't know if it's like 
something about Indiana, but I'm loving what those teams are doing. The Colts, they're my team of the year. So if I, I love the Colts. And then the Pacers, you know, follow my mall theory. If if Nate, your whatever his name is, walked into a walked into a mall, do you think anyone would be like, Nate, oh my gosh, congrats on the hire? So, you know, no. <laughs> the short answer is no. That would never happen in any mall of any kind of any place. That would never happen. So if you don't know who Nate is, he's a former G League coach, scouting guy. He he followed like the Nick Nurse path where he coached overseas. He coached, you know, low levels. He, now he's coaching, you know, on the sidelines. He was with the Raptors for a couple of years, knows Nick Nurse well. I, I love that hiring, especially for an organization that hired some, you know, relatively, you know, name, like Nate McMillan's a name in the, in the NBA. They didn't follow like the head coach carousel that a lot of teams follow fall into where it's like, oh, where was he coaching last season? Oh, that was a dumpster fire. Why did he get a job here? Like you see that a lot in the NFL, in the NFL too, where like coordinate glitzy coordinators get jobs year after year after year after year. And it's like, they're not all that great, but they keep getting head coaching jobs. Like I like stepping out of the box of the, of the conventional coaching hire. So I, I love Nate a plus hire. I, I love the scouting behind it and I love his background. Love it. Now, I would say Bjorkinson definitely fits your theory, and I like the hire too, uh, for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned. I also think it's really interesting that a team like Indiana went with the Nick Nurse route here. Small market team probably isn't going to be able to bring in a ton of big-name players to play for them in free agency. So you need that type of head coach that really knows his stuff, that can really X, you know, win the game with X's and O's and good, you know, a good sound foundation in terms of uh, chemistry, in terms of culture with that team. I think it's a great hire, especially coming out of that sort of uh, the same vein as Nick Nurse. Now, we'll talk, let's talk about Stan Van Gundy, who's now the new head coach of the New Orleans Pelicans. Yep. Uh, kind of the exact opposite of what you're talking about. What do you think of this one? I give it a C minus, and I'm being generous. Like, and, and hold on, let me, uh, let me add a little wrinkle into this, Andrew, and I'll ask you. Handshake bet, me and you you know, soda to the winner. Nate Bergen is, is with the Pacers for five more years or Tim, Tim or Tom Thibodeau is around in two H- handshake. Wh- which one is going to happen? Oh, Bjorkinson's going to be with Indiana, but that's just because Thibodeau's with the Knicks and uh, James Dolan will fire him after three months. Well, yeah, but like that's, that, that's the Dolan factor. I, I'm just like Stan, Va- like Stan Van Gundy. Great. He got Orlando to the finals a decade ago. How great. He, oh, he was with uh, the Pistons. How'd that, how'd that go? He really deserved a head coaching job. What, you're, you're a glitzy organization that everyone follows because Zion's there. You hire a big-name coach. You don't need a big-time coach. You hired Alvin Gentry, who was a good, sturdy coach. Then all of a sudden, you go to Stan Van Gundy. You don't need to recognize – like, we know the Van Gundys because they're on ESPN, they're on TNT, they're big names. Do we really – like – what in the past like five years did Stan Van Gundy do to deserve this head coaching job? Nothing. There we go. But they're a big name. But and I that's why I think I like the hire here for New Orleans. Oh, you do. Okay, I do. And I know it. You're bringing up a ton of good points. However, I think you look at this New Orleans roster: Zion, Brandon Ingram, uh, Lonzo Ball. Big personalities on that team. I don't think you can bring in a guy that you would you wouldn't be able to pick out of a lineup there because they're not going to respect him. 
they're going to walk all over him and sort of treat him like, come on, what have you ever done? What have no. you done in the league? And I, I, I know what you're saying. Like, Stan Van Gundy's not much better, but he, he, at least he's a name. He can be sort of a front. He can come in and immediately establish some sort of culture. Because New Orleans, they don't have the time to develop a culture like Indiana does. Indiana's going to rebuild. New Orleans is trying to compete now. They're trying to at least make a name for themselves in the West. Does Stan Van Gundy make, you know, put them over the Lakers? Absolutely not. Of course not. But it's someone that can be a leader. He doesn't have to establish himself. He's already done it. He can go in there and he can be the head coach, the leader. He doesn't have to prove anything now. And that's where I think the advantage is with him in New Orleans. I can see your point, but that's not their personality. Like Zion's a good guy. Lonzo's a good guy. Brandon Ingram's not a coach killer. They're not that kind of guy that just look over their shoulder and be like, you coach in the G League? This is the NBA. This is a total... Like, They're not that now. And I know... Oh, I, 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 and I don't want to... I don't want to try to predict this because I don't know any of these guys personally. But when you have three star players like that, you know, I... I mean, maybe it will work. Maybe it will. But I think if it starts to sour, because maybe Lonzo feels like he's not getting enough touches. Like, hey, I was number two pick once. Why am I? Like, you guys traded, you know, got me in an Anthony Davis trade. But, like, what if that happens? What if one of, them, one of their heads starts to get a little too big? You need a, guy, a, a strong presence, a strong personality to kind of put them back in their place. And I think that's what Stan Van Gundy is. I have a question. So Minnesota, right? A couple of years ago, we were like, wow, they bring in Jimmy Butler. Wow, they bring Carl Anthony Townsend. Wow, they bring Andrew Wiggins. And they need a strong personality coach, a big name coach to really hone all of that in. They bring in Tom Thibodeau, who's the toughest guy potentially in, in coaching. Big name, no dilly-dallying. There's no, like, there's all heart, all so defense. I, I see. How did that at. work out? It didn't go well. And now Terrible. I see your point. I'm not trying to say strong personality in terms of demanding or loud or, you know, it's my way or the highway. I mean someone who just has the experience, who knows how to handle those personalities, someone who can come in and sort of just be the, the, the stoic presence, the when crap hits the fan, this guy there and can help clean up. He's not going to waver. You have to test that with a new head coach. Stan Van Gundy's coach how many years in the NBA? He's been in basketball for how long? Right? Wow. In the NBA. That's an advantage that he has. And I just see... With the tra- the trajectory that New Orleans is going, they can't have a developmental coach like Nick Bjorkinson, like Indiana does. Ooh, they need one. I would say they I need one out so. of everyone. And this brings me to Dan Tony too. Stan Van, like Stan Van Gundy, right? Under his watch, or Dwight Howard wanted out of Orlando. He went to the Pistons. He's tried to start Josh Smith, Greg Monroe, and Andre Drummond in the same lineup. None who could shoot. Terrible decision. I don't care who. I don't care who made that decision. He, he co-signed that. That was terrible, and it was a train wreck. The, he, coaching-wise, like maybe he's a good guy. He's a great analyst. I love him on TV. I love him analyzing the game. He, he's a great personality. Coaching? He's done a mediocre job at best. And, and D'Antoni, same thing. And he, like Indiana was rumored to you know, make big money at him, and, and he's kind of top tier among available coaches right now, supposedly. Dwight Howard was marginalized under his watch. They flame out in the playoffs every year. Why go on this coaching carousel where it's like, oh, 
we want to develop young players. Oh, Mike D'Antoni, you're available. Oh, you marginalized Dwight Howard and Paul Gasol together in LA. And he wanted to leave a year later and go, went to Houston. Oh, that worked out well. Here's the job. Why not go with a grinder, a guy who knows scouting, who's going to develop your young talent, and ultimately a guy that's not going to bring his own baggage? Because you know what? On the first day of whenever Mike D'Antoni gets a head coaching job, which I'm betting is within the next 20 minutes, he will be asked in his introductory press conference, what went wrong in Houston? Why didn't you guys win more than you did? You had four years with James Harden. Why didn't that go well? Don't you want a guy that goes into his first press conference with the team and goes, well, this is my first head coaching job, but I you know, put a lot of hours in in Russia or whatever. And I'm not saying, I don't mean to say like this is a blanket thing where you should just ask Joe Schmo off the street to coach your basketball team. I'm not saying that. But more often than not, when you get a guy who's been on NBA sidelines as an assistant, who knows scouting, who knows, who doesn't, you have to Google who it is. That works out more often than not. Like Quinn Snyder, Eric Spolster, Brad Stevens, these guys who before their jobs, would remain anonymous, not Mike D'Antoni, star coach, Stan Van Gundy, star coach, Jeff Van Gundy. That would be a disaster if he went to Houston. I'm calling it right now. That would not work well. You need a guy who's a grinder. And I'm not saying like, oh, you know, Steve Smith, like Josh, whatever, random guy should coach a basketball team that he's qualified because nobody who knows who he is. No, I know that's not what you're saying. I know but that. Star coaches flame out more than they succeed. I'm just, that's the point I'm, I'm getting at. Like, it's like a rotisserie, coach after coach after coach after coach. When are you going to realize that these guys, their success is limited? There's a, there's a ceiling to their, their, their teams. Mike D'Antoni's not a title coach. Stan Van Gundy's not a title coach. They, I, I could make the argument they're not developmental coaches. They're just coaches <laughs> who get elevated to positions that I don't think they're warranted to get, personally. I still... I. I really like Jorkinson. I like Jorkinson for every reason you said about him and how he fits with the Pacers. I think it's perfect. I, but I also like Van Gundy in New Orleans because it just fits. It's New Orleans. I think the, and the league is desperate to get New Orleans off the ground finally. Like how many times have the Pelicans been gifted the top pick to get that market off the ground for the league? Chris Paul failed. Anthony Davis failed. They finally have, they get it again with Zion Williamson. And this is probably their last shot because afterwards the league's not stepping in anymore. So they're going to give them, they, the Pelicans are going to take every shot they can to make sure this team succeeds. And I don't think you can do that with kind of a, you know, a c- coach with the jury still out on him. You need a guy with a reputation. The, the jury's still out on Stan Van Gundy too. I mean, he, he's not proven at all. He, uh, I don't put him in the top 20 coaches in the league right now. I really don't like I couldn't name 20 coaches in the league right now. So, I mean, I'm going to name a few guys like Lloyd Pierce. Do you know who that guy is? No, absolutely not. Providing some promising this is gonna be like ben in with baseball. This is going to be like Ben with baseball. Just saying Terry Stotts playoff right. coach with Portland. That mm-hmm. sounds familiar. Portland. Really good. Monty Williams was a head coach previously, but Phoenix was eight. No one was really good in the bubble. He he's providing a culture there. I'm just saying you don't need to hire. Um, like it. Don't get me wrong. If Phil Jackson's available. You take him. You you offer him whatever he can get to get him on the sidelines. But if there's like Stan Van, Doc Rivers, Mike D'Antoni, where it's just like they didn't work at the previous three jobs they were at. Why would they work here? Start new. Like, I, I, I just need some new blood in coaching. Come on. Eric Spolster's working. Lloyd Pierce is working. I, I, 
trying to name some Nick Nurse worked. Nick Nurse clicked. Terry Stotts clicked. We didn't know who these guys were before they got the job, and they're succeeding. Who are the other? Who are the guys that flamed out? D'Antoni, Van Gundy, just T- Tom Thibodeau is the biggest one. Oh my gosh, give me a break! Just over and over and over, I see these, and it's like you know, average, I guess, maybe. So there are two more head coaching vacancies left. Yeah. Oklahoma City and Houston. How would you fill those? Same, just the same exact thing. No, I mean. The problem at Houston, you need a championship coach. You need a championship caliber coach. Trouble is, most of those guys have jobs already. <laughs> so it's like you're, you're running out of options. So I guess Ty Lue would have been my, my, my coach of choice or maybe even Doc, but. <laughs> a Ty uh, Lue championship coach. I know, I, know why, I, no, I know what you're saying. Because like, they're incredibly hard to find. Phil Jackson's not walking through, isn't coming out of retirement. You know what I mean? I, I get what you're saying. It's incredibly hard to find that type of coach. I just think the fact that we had to consider Ty Lue a championship level coach is that's what comical I'm saying. To me. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm saying. Like, there's who's out there? Who are you gonna get? Hi, just hire a guy who's been on NBA sidelines forever. Mark maybe Jackson. Under, maybe, yeah. Honestly, give him a shot. Just and and Mark was really good with the Warriors. They got him to what like a six seed. He was out in the playoffs early, but you could you could see the foundation forming there. Mark would be a great hire. I, it's just over and over and over these same decent coaches so, keep getting jobs. I'm starting to see the discrepancy or the, the what's what's missing, but where we're not linking up. Okay, your focus a lot more on Stan Van Gundy, the name, the person. I'm focused more on the character, and I don't mean him as a character, but the the type of person or the type of coach that Stan Van Gundy is. Do I think Stan Van Gundy is going to lead the Pelicans to a championship? Absolutely not. No way. But the Pelicans needed more of a pop at head coach than just Joe Schmo off the street or some guy that's been in the film room for the last 20 years. That's what I'm saying. And I would say the same thing fits for Houston. The Houston Rockets need someone who can come in there and be a presence, be a legit bonafide, you know, established head coach. And that's, that's incredibly hard to find because there's not a lot of them out there. Most of them already have jobs. You know, I think the only one that you, that's left just left Houston. So they're not going back to Dan, to Dan Tony. You know I mean? But Houston needs a guy that can come in, garner the respect of Russell Westbrook and James Harden, and is capable of managing their personalities. He must be able to immediately establish his culture in Houston and get them playing his style of basketball and working cohesively as a unit. That's where I'm, I'm trying to say. 100%. I, I agree with you there. I, I, think I, just Oval- don't think, I just don't think Westbrook and Harden will do that for a guy that hasn't really done anything, period. At least with a guy like Van Gundy, he's done something. Might not be a good something, but it's something. It's a name they recognize. In Oklahoma, I know we're pushing up on time, but Oklahoma City is a different story. Okay, so it should be exactly what... Indy did. It should be exactly what Indiana, Indiana did. Especially if you shed off Chris Paul, Gallinari, and Stephen Adams. If you if uh-huh. you if you just build around Shane Gilgis Alexander and that Darius Basley and that young core, you need what Indy did. You exactly. We're on the same. We're on the same page. We're on the same page. Uh, NBA coaching vacancies uh, coming up next. A little bit more World Series talk. Game three tonight. Dodgers Rays. Our thoughts next here in the final call. Last and final segment of the final call this episode. 
World Series Game 3 tonight. Let's, let's go over Games 1 and 2 first. Uh, game 1, Clayton Kershaw starts for the Dodgers. Jason, did Clayton Kershaw finally shake the proverbial uh, playoff monkey off his back with his Game 1 start? Yeah, Andrew, that's interesting because I was thinking as, you, as it was happening, I was thinking, is this you know, the shift in the tides here? I don't think it is. I don't think the monkey's off his back because it, ultimately it's been... I think you'd have to string in like two years consistently of, of doing it, doing it, doing it. I think one night is impressive. I loved what I saw from Kershaw in game one, but ultimately that reputation might be too steep to at least, you know, dig out of early. I think it, it might be too early for him to like solidify him as a, you know, a guy you can trust in the postseason. That monkey's still on his back, but it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I've been Clayton Kershaw's big supporter on the show. This you know, these entire playoffs. But, you know, he was great in game one, but but it was game one. Can he do that in a game where, you know, the Dodgers trail in the series or they need him to pitch on short, in relief on short rest? Can he do what Madison Bumgarner did for the Giants in 2014? The question of whether Clayton Kershaw can perform the playoffs when the lights are braced is still unanswered. You know, I mean, however, I don't think, I think without Kershaw, this series isn't tied. Tampa leads 2-0. Because yep. I think the Dodgers' bullpen has just been so bad. And I'm really concerned about how this team can do with really only two legitimate starting pitchers. Yeah, that's a danger. If you don't have a bullpen, you can't really win, especially with a lineup that's been, you know, really on fire with, with the Rays. I don't know. Like, all through, it's really funny because all throughout the playoffs, we were like, look how, look how deep the Dodgers are, especially pitching-wise. Uh, Gratterall was good. You know, we were just in awe of how they were like resourceful pitching wise. And and us two as Red Sox fans, we were just kind of reflecting. We're like, we didn't take Gratterall on that Mookie Betts deal. Why, why didn't we do it? He's really good. And now, now all of a sudden, yeah, yeah, who knows? I mean, you know, j- the jury's still, still out on him, obviously. But I think the Dodgers might be in trouble if that bullpen doesn't shape up. But uh, I don't know. I'll, I can t- I'll, I'll stick with my Rays pick. Let's just say that. I, I, I'm confident in my Rays going forward. Yeah, I mean, they had a good good win. I just think to myself, you know, if the Dodgers had a third starter, you know, if David Price had not opted out at the beginning of the season. If Ryu if, wasn't traded. If, <laughs> Ryu, if Ryu didn't leave him free agency to the Blue Jays. If they had just one more starter, I think this series is done in five games. Really? I do. I think... LA's lineup is that much stronger than Tampa Bay's because the the matchup you really want to watch here is Tampa Bay's pitching against LA's offense. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when L, when LA's pitching, Tampa Bay's hitting. It's like okay, you, you know, go get a snack, bathroom break a little bit. <laughs> it's still it's still entertaining, but the marquee matchup you you sit down to watch Glass now versus Betts. You sit down to watch Snell versus Bellinger. You know what I mean? Yeah. No one cares about Tony Gonsolin against I don't know Joey Wendell. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's I can see where you're coming from. I don't know if it's bathroom break worthy, but I I, I can see where you're coming. I from. mean, if, <laughs> normally it's not, but I mean, if you're gonna pick a time, That's are you true. gonna get up during uh, Charlie Morton against Justin Turner? Or are you gonna get up against you know, mm-hmm. I'll pick a uh, Brandon Lau against uh, Luis Urias? I, I'm just saying, like just. Uh-huh. I can see where you're coming. 100%. You know, it's just, I, I worry about the Dodgers' bullpen. I really, and they were good. They were good during the regular season. Gratterall pitched great against the Braves in the NLCS. But 
Henley Jansen's past his prime. He hasn't even appeared in the series yet. Nope. You know what I mean? Blake Trinan hasn't been exactly what was uh, what they thought of him. You know, they're they're kind of relying on openers. Uh, they don't they didn't trust Gonsolin to go more than two and two and a third in game two. Dustin May doesn't still seem still doesn't seem right. So I really worry about this team, about the Dodgers, if Kershaw or Bueller isn't on the mound. I do have a question though, and it relates to Kershaw. If this series is like Tampa and seven, but you could say like in some of those games, Dodgers pitching just like just blew it. And, and we just look at Kershaw's performance and we were like, wow, he, he was really good. Does that improve Kershaw's reputation as a playoff pitcher? If, if the, the overall pitching staff let him down and, not, and it wasn't Kershaw, does that make him look better? It doesn't hurt it, but it doesn't improve it either. You know, Kershaw, he's got to have that moment where he puts the team on his back and pulls them even when they don't want to be pulled, even when they're pulling in the exact opposite direction. Kershaw's gonna put the team has to put the Dodgers on his back if he's gonna really, you know, completely change the narrative. Because even I think after this season, even if they do win the World Series and Kershaw pitches really well in like a game six or a game seven, there's still a lot of evidence in the other way. He's really gonna have to outdo himself if he wants to really change that narrative. At least for me. Yeah. I I can see where you're coming from, but when you were just talking about that, I was like when the team is going in the opposite direction, I was like, when you have the second highest payroll in baseball, you should not have your team pull the other direction, have your starting pitcher, you know, oh, I know. Pull you out of it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I know. It just shouldn't come down to that. <laughs> I know. And, and, you know, but that's why you need Kershaw and Bueller to go like seven, eight innings. You really do because the bullpen, I don't trust at all. I really don't trust this uh, LA bullpen. You know, Jake McGee, I mean, that's a name from, like, 2012, Joe Kelly. <laughs> I mean, he's entertaining, but he can't hit Not He great. can't hit the strike zone for his life. Uh, Gratterall is, you know, falling off a cliff in these last couple games. Uh, Blake Trinick, you can say the same thing. This Dodger bullpen is really concerning. And if, you know, if they're going to rely on openers and, you know, only having their starters go in, like, four or five, I don't like their chances. I really don't. I don't mean to go down a rabbit hole here, and we didn't have this plan, but as a Red Sox, as, as residents of Red Sox Nation that we are, a lot of people are like, Mookie Betts, he's been the best player in the World Series. Why did the Red Sox trade him? They should have gotten more. It was, it was this and that and that and that. I don't know about you, but I'm just like, yeah, Mookie Betts is doing what Mookie Betts should do in the World Series. I'm not having any regrets about trading him. I'm not, I, I don't feel any different than I did like six months ago about it. When, like, what say you on that? I, I'm right there with you, really. I mean, they should, I think they should have gotten more for what they, get, for what they gave up. Uh, you know, not getting a guy like Gratterall, only getting you know, Verdugo and Downs, which is still a pretty good return, but that's not enough for a top three player in the major leagues. But for it to be an outrage on Twitter and everyone is like, why'd we trade him? I miss him. The Jersey. It's like, I, I mean, it, it's, I get it. I mean, it's the world series. It's national TV. Everyone's watching. It's the only show in town, especially right now. Um, you know, and he, that he, Mookie Betts did what Mookie Betts did. It was a great way to put it. He, Mookie Betts did what he does. What was what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. He went out and he, he created a run for himself. He stole second. Stole third, scored at, scored on a ground ball with the infield pulled in. <laughs> it was it was a sight to behold. It was great. It, that was a true baseball play, and I loved it because it showed that small ball still has a place in the, in, in baseball. Yep. You know, it wasn't just 
get on base with a walk and have someone knock you in with a home run. You know, it, Mookie Betts created a run for himself, and that's what makes him one of the best players in the game. I did think that he, like the broadcast is even leaning a little too heavy into it, though. Like, thank you. You know, like thank saying you. like he this is the best player in baseball. How the Red Sox gave him up. You know, I mean, like, did it, did anyone forget that Mike Trout still exists? Did Mike Trout retire <laughs> last night or something that I just forgot? Is, He's down the road. I mean, is Nolan Arenado just like you know not playing baseball? Did Nolan Arenado get a job as an insurance agent? What happened to Ronald Acuna? What happened to Freddie Freeman? Is Freddie <laughs> Freeman selling boat? Uh, Selling, uh, selling boat paddles or something. I don't know. Like, it just seems like everyone just forgot about these other players. Mookie Betts is a top three player in baseball. He absolutely is. But to just say it far and away, forget everyone else. It's Mookie Betts in the 50 feet of crap. Like, no, Mookie, it's Mookie Betts along with, like, 12 other guys that you could have in that conversation. Yep. It, like, is, is Bellinger still on this team? Like, are we, are you, like that's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Did Fernando Tatis Jr. just not have, like, one of the, not have a breakout season type of thing? And I'm not trying to take away from Mookie Betts, but, like, hold on here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like you said, it's one of the first times in his career that he's really been, like, a hallmark player in the playoffs where it's, like, they're leaning on him. Like, the Red Sox, he, I don't want to say he underachieved, but he didn't. He didn't really go above and beyond he, his expectations. He had a really good 2018 regular season, but in that World Series, he really didn't do much that helped. He didn't really do much to help the cause in that 2018 World Series. In the NLCS, he had a really bad series against the Braves. So, and heading to the series, I was questioning: Is Mookie Betts kind of just a regular season player? No, I mean, at least so far in this World Series, he's shown up. He's been the Dodgers' best player. So. You know, he's changing that narrative, but again, like there's just there's so much talent in the, in the major leagues right now. There are so many guys that you could put that you could pick ahead of them and like I wouldn't necessarily blame you. And it's not that because they're you know clearly far and away better, but there's an argument to be made. And, and tip of the cap to you going into this series, you said that Mookie Betts was I think it was you or maybe maybe it was Ben that said that uh, Mookie Betts is the Dodgers' most valuable player and he needs to really show out for them to have a chance. And it's really funny what a few you know unbelievable catches can do on the biggest stage huh all of a sudden elevates him to you know best by far uh like you said the best show up when the lights are brightest yep best show up when the lights are brightest but we're talking about Mookie Betts and how good of a player he is I want to know I mean is there a player on either team that you could take and put on the other one that would just immediately change the tide of this series you know like if yeah. there was one player on the Dodgers that if the Rays had would just immediately change everything. If there is a player that the Rays had, the Dodgers had him instead, would, you know, this would be a clean sweep. Is there anything like that for you? Because I had a couple, but I wonder what you think. Yeah. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is if the Dodgers had a Charlie Morton, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't that be great? Um, I, mean, if the, I mean, I would just say if the Dodgers had a pitcher. Yeah, take a your pick, pitcher. any one of Doesn't them. Matter. <laughs> it, it, it could be a starter reliever, but they need someone, they need some help there. They need to take some of the load off Kershaw and Bueller. I would say, whether it's Glass now, Snell, Morton, if you want to go with a bullpen arm, you want to go Nick Anderson, Peter Fairbanks has been pretty good. You want to go Diego, Diego Castillo or Jose Alvarado. Like, take your, take your pick. The Dodgers need pitching. The Rays have a ton of it. Mm-hmm. So that's, your, that's the automatic move if you're the, uh, if you're the Dodgers. If, what, but if there's a player, the if, I'm going to ask you that. If you're, if you're okay. the Rays and you're looking at the Dodgers roster, what's one player that you would take in a heartbeat just to make your team that much better? Mookie. I mean, I, I know the I, I know the, so, the Rays are already set in the in the outfield, but if you can get a guy like if he's playing the way he is right now, I, I 
it would be hard to pass up. You know, 100%. It, you're right. Mookie Betts is the obvious choice, but if you're, I'm gonna just if I'm gonna be creative here and try to you know be go off the beaten path, do it. I'm taking like someone like Justin Turner. I'm taking a table setter, and that's not that Justin Turner can't hit for power. Justin Turner is a, is a great player, mm-hmm. but the Rays are in desperate need of someone who can get on base ahead of their power hitters, because it seems to me that the Rays are so far in the direction of analytics that they really are just feast or fam. If they're not hitting home runs, they're not hitting at all. They're like a 12 strikeout a game team. You walk 12, you walk uh, eight times and you hit seven home runs, but there's no singles. There's no, there's no doubles. You need someone that can get on base. If you're only going to hit runs, you need someone who can get on base ahead of them. And they haven't had that. So I'm taking a Justin Turner, especially because like you said, they're, Rays are crowded in the outfield. You know, I mean, Mookie's so versatile; he could play second base. He could play almost anywhere on the diamond, maybe besides catcher or first base. But I mean, really, I would go with Turner because they could use an infielder, and they're also right. They're also left-handed heavy in their lineup. Yep. You know, which is why I didn't take Corey Seager, who hits left-handed. Because I mean, Seager, you could also say he's been the Dodgers' best player in the series. You could say he's been the best player in the overall period. Mm-hmm. I would just say, you know, you need a right-handed bat. You need somewhere in the infield. Someone who can get on base. That sounds like Justin Turner to me. And he can make some plays. Like, he can – like, there was a moment in at least game one, I think it was, that he made some really good defensive plays. I don't think he's necessarily renowned as, like, a great fielder at, at naturally. But he made some really good plays in, in game one. I love that pick, honestly. I, I wish I thought of that. We've talked about how good the starting pitching is in this series. I mean, let's – do me a favor, Jason. Rank the starting pitchers in the series. You know, Kershaw, Bueller, Morton, Snell, Glass. Now, rank them. Based off performance or just overall? However you oh, feel. Okay. No qualifiers. Okay. Uh, I, I'm higher on Morton than I than than a lot of people are, so I I might have to put him one. Kershaw two. I like Glass. I like actually no Snell's in there, and then Glass now, and then Bueller. Really, I'm 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 okay on Bueller. I don't know. I I like the Tampa Bay staff a lot better. I uh, well, I mean, yeah, it's hard not to like the Tampa Bay staff. I, for me, I'm going Blake Snell's number one. Okay. I think he was just he shut down that LA lineup in Game Two. Yeah, he was stellar. And I think with the second pick, you could flip a coin with either Walker Bueller or Tyler Glass. Now you could flip a coin. Okay. I mean, these two guys are like future Cy Young Award winners. I think. Yeah. I'm going Kershaw four. And then Morton five, and that's not because Morton sucks. Because Morton is not a bad starting pitcher. He's a really strong innings eating, solid starting pitcher. Just, I mean, just it goes to show how good the pitching is in this series. When you got names like Snell, Bueller, Kershaw ahead of you, and you're five as Morton, that's not something to blink at. That's not a, something to be sad about. Yeah, that you're even in the conversation is a great thing because Charlie Morton is a great starting pitcher. I guess but I was just caught in the you, recency bias. Like I watched Game Seven of that ALCS, and and uh-huh. pitched an absolute gem, five and two thirds score. He did. It was. He I'm really did. I just think my issue is I feel like Morton doesn't have a great fastball. He's he's a he relies heavy on his breaking stuff, and so does Kershaw. Kershaw isn't what he, what he once was. But you look at Snell, you look at Bueller, and especially Glass. Now those guys have electric fastballs. They have stuff coming out of their ears. And I mean stuff. I mean, like, just, you know, pitching uh, prowess. I mean, Snell, 
he has a slider that he throws that just disappears on you on your back foot if you're right-handed. Glassnail's a 100-mile-per-hour fastball match with a curveball that's dropped off the table out of nowhere is insane. Bueller might be the most well-rounded pitcher out of anyone in the series. So it's not because Morton's bad. He's just like the other guys are just that good. I totally agree. We'll wrap it up here. Game three tonight. Who's taking this one? Who's going up 2-1? I'll take the Rays in the long haul, but I'll take Dodgers in game three. Yep. I agree. Dodgers game three. I still picked them to win the series, but it's LA. LA is this has a stronger lineup, and the only thing that's held them back is the starting pitching. We saw what happened in game two, and they didn't have it. But tonight, they got Walker Bueller on the mound, so I think this is one tonight heavy in the Dodgers' favor. Yeah, go race. I, you know, we have a little standoff here going on. It's nothing personal or anything, but you know, you you chose the 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 Dodgers like in our World Series, um, not World Series, our MLB playoff preview. I chose the race. Now you know we're standing off against each other. We're matched up. Yes, we are. Just know if the Dodgers don't win this series, believe me, I will be their harshest critic. <laughs> Just believe me. Like I'll oh like fire Dave Roberts. I will be all over them if the Dodgers lose this series. That's about all the time we have for the final call today. Make sure you check this out on our podcast page, wherever you're listening to your podcast, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're interested in doing some reading, you can always check out newenglandsportsunited.com or scoreboardtimes.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at FinalCallMCC. For Jason Snow, I'm Andrew Fantuccio. This has been the Final Call on Radio Massasoit. Be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion.